Isaiah 6, the calling and commission of Isaiah, and the impending judgments of God upon this people. So we'll start in verse 1 of Isaiah 6. And again, I am using the Isaiah Institute's translation of Isaiah. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw my Lord seated on a throne, highly exalted, the skirt of his robe filling the sanctuary. Seraphs stood by him overhead, each having six wings. With two, they could veil their presence, with two, conceal their location, and with two, fly about. Now, this is actually chronologically, you know, the first event in Isaiah's account. And Isaiah's account and his prophetic ministry begin with seeing the Lord and seeing the Lord face to face, much like Moses did in Moses chapter 1 or Nephi did in 1 Nephi chapter 11. Now, the seraphim, this is one of Isaiah's spiritual levels, and this is the level of, uh, for men, a king and a priest, for women, a queen and priestess. And if we go to DNC 76, and here in the first two verses, uh, we have multiple ascension levels that have been outlined. The very top ascension level is the Lord. And the ascension level below the Lord is the seraphim level. And then Isaiah is below that. There are no shortcuts on the path of ascension. And DNC 76, starting in verse 51, gives us the ascension levels that Isaiah is setting up for us. <laughs> So verse 51 of DNC 76 is baptism by water into the fullness of the gospel. Verse 52, baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost. Verses 53 and 54 are entering into the rest of the Lord, which rest is the fullness of his glory, and thus becoming members of the church of the firstborn. Um, this is the ascension level that Isaiah is now ascending to with this experience. Now, the ascension level of the seraphim is described next. Verses 56 through 58. They are they who are priests and kings, who have received of his fullness and of his glory, and are priests of the Most High after the order of Melchizedek, which was after the order of Enoch, which is after the order of the only begotten Son. Wherefore, as it is written, God's little G, even the sons of God, big G. And so this is the ascension level of the seraphim. And there is no other way to ascend to this ascension level. This is also the ascension level that qualifies when it comports with one's mission um, to be translated. And so the seraphim level is that level which qualifies for translation. And their job is to minister and help others ascend up the spiritual ladder, specifically those who are directly below them on the level of ascension. And as they are ministering to those who are below, um, seeking to ascend, 
they are in turn fulfilling the requirements that God has sent for them to ascend to the next level. The seraphs stood by him overhead, each having six wings, with two they could veil their presence, and with two conceal their location, and with two fly about. Now we know about translated beings, that unless they receive permission from Father, um, they can't show themselves unto men and women in the flesh. So, you know, these wings are, uh, represent, you know, glory and even veils. So the two wings that they veil their presence are the veils that prevent a mortal from seeing a translated being unless they have specific permission. Um, with, with two, they fly about or they are able to move around um, as heavenly beings move around at the speed of thought. Verse three, they called out to one another and said, most holy is Jehovah of hosts. The consummation of all the earth is his glory. The consummation of the earth occurs at the end of the millennium. After the battle of Gog and Magog, when this earth is celestialized. And as we read in the Doctrine and Covenants, the earth becomes, as it were, a sea of glass and a great Urim Thummim, which we can look into to learn things of all uh, knowledge at the level that we're at and beneath. And then each man, each woman who enters into the celestial kingdom when the earth is celestialized is given a white stone with a new name written upon it, whereby they might inquire about things of higher orders and be taught. So that is the consummation of the earth. And as we read in the King Follett Discourse, when this earth is celestialized, the glory goes to Jesus Christ, who gives it to his father, who gives it to his father, and so on up. And everybody takes one step up on the grand eternal staircase of the gods. Most holy is Jehovah of hosts. The consummation of all the earth is his glory. The earth will be celestialized and the glory will be given to Christ. Verse four, the threshold shook to its foundation, to the sound of those who called and a mist filled the temple. You know, a mist being the glory of God. And the temple being talked about here isn't an earthly temple. This is a heavenly temple or what Moses and Nephi call the high mountain, what Isaiah in the ascension of Isaiah and what Enoch in the book of Enoch call the seventh heaven, or that place in the heavens where Christ reigns in the fullness of his glory. Verse five, then I thought, woe is me. I have been struck dumb for I am a man of unclean speech and I live among a people of unclean speech. I've seen the king, Jehovah of hosts, with mine own eyes. When a man or woman enters into Christ's presence in his glory, they realize as never they could have before the awful gulf 
that separates them from where Christ is and how desperately they need a savior. As a cross-reference, let's go to 3 Nephi, chapter 11. <clears throat> and even though the Nephites aren't coming into Christ's presence in his glory, still they've had to have a baptism of fire, not the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, but a baptism of fire to sanctify them, to prepare them for that portion of telestial glory that Christ would bring with him when he visited the Nephites, for he could not come in his terrestrial or celestial glories, lest the earth would have been destroyed, and all of the people with it. But in 3 Nephi chapter 11, um, halfway through verse 3, and it was not a harsh voice, neither was it a loud voice. Nevertheless, and notwithstanding it being a small voice, it appears them that did hear to the center, insomuch that there was no part of their frame that it did not cause to quake, yet it did pierce them to the very soul and did cause their hearts to burn. Now, when one experiences a concentrated enough portion of the light of Christ, that it causes not only a spiritual but physiological effect, um, then that rises to the level of a baptism of fire, and when one has the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, one has the most profound baptism of fire of their life uh, because of the sanctification required before the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But this was not that. This was a baptism of fire to prepare them for the coming of Christ. And verse 13, And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto them, saying, Arise and come forth unto me, that ye may thrust your hands into my side, and also that ye may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth, and have been slain for the sins of the world. And it came to pass that the multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side, and did feel the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. And this they did do, going forth one by one, until they had all gone forth, and did see with their eyes, and did feel with their hands, and did know of a surety, and did bear record that it was he of whom it was written by the prophets that should come. And when they had all gone forth, and had witnessed for themselves, they did cry with one accord, saying, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Most High God. And they did fall down at the feet of Jesus and did worship him. Hosanna means, oh God, save us now. And so when the Nephites felt the prints of the nails for themselves, they realized as they never could have before the terrible price that had been paid for them and how desperately they needed a savior. And the same idea is being expressed in verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 6. Then I thought, woe is me. I've been struck dumb, for I am a man of unclean speech, and I live among a people of unclean speech. I have seen the King Jehovah of hosts with my eyes. And another reference in Moses chapter 1, the words of God in verse 1, which he spake unto Moses at a time when Moses was caught up to an exceedingly high mountain, and he saw God face to face, and he talked with him, and the glory of God was upon Moses. Therefore, Moses could endure his presence. 
So Moses sees God face to face, not on this earth, but in the seventh heaven, or as Moses terms it, an exceedingly high mountain. And carrying along the same theme as verse 5 in Isaiah 6, in verse 10, and it came to pass that it was for the space of many hours before Moses did again receive his natural strength, like unto man. And he said unto himself, now for this cause I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. Few individuals have ever known the pomp and circumstance that this world has to offer as Moses knew it growing up as a prince in Egypt, but coming into Christ's presence in his glory made that appear as nothing. And Moses also realized that the vast chasm that separated him from Christ and how desperately he needed a savior. So coming into Christ's presence in his glory is extremely personal. It is intimate, but what it is never is casual. And this concept is being expressed by Isaiah in Isaiah 5. And as we're reading Isaiah 5 and the commission of Isaiah, uh, we have to also realize that Isaiah himself is one of the end-time metaphors, one of the metaphors for the Lord's end-time servant. Since there is no historical figure that completely uh, is a precedent for what the end-time servant will do and who he will be, Isaiah has to use a composite. So he introduces... Uh, several metaphors for the Lord's end-time servant, and this is one of them. And before the end-time servant comes on the scene, he also has to be commissioned to fulfill his mission in a very like manner as Isaiah is being commissioned. Verse 6, then one of the seraphs flew to me carrying an ember, which he had taken with tongues from the altar, touching it to my mouth. He said, see, this has touched your lips. Your sins are taken away. Your transgressions atoned for. When one comes into Christ's presence in his glory, that which is grosser matter and that which is dross in the individual is turned to ash and spiritual fire replaces it with matter that is more pure and more refined. So it is a physiological experience, not just a spiritual one. And Isaiah is trying to find words to describe the best that he can, the experience that he had. And we have to recognize that there are no words that can accurately describe the experience that Isaiah had, but he's doing his best to do so. Then I heard the voice of my Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I replied, here am I, send me. And in the Hebrew, it's hinnani, which are the words recorded in scripture that we have Christ saying, when father asked 
who will go and make an atonement for my sons and my daughters? And Christ said, here am I, send me. So the ultimate example of the end time servant in all cases is Jesus Christ. But lower down on the spiritual ladder, we also have historical precedents um, who point to Christ, uh, who are, um, you know, precedents for aspects of the Lord's end time servant. And as Isaiah is receiving his commission to go forth and cry repentance and declare that the people must repent or be destroyed and declare the covenants that God offers to his people, so will Joseph in his return. Then I heard the voice of my Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I replied, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to these people, go on hearing, but not understanding. Go on seeing, but not perceiving. Make the heart of these people grow fat. Dull their ears and shut their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand in their heart, and repent and be healed. Well, what does that mean? See with our eyes, hear with our ears, understand with our heart, repent and be healed. It is the new and everlasting covenant. In 3 Nephi 9 verse 20, Christ declares what this covenant is. He declares what it is to see with our eyes, hear with our ears, understand with our arts, repent and be healed. But different terminology is used in describing the same um, event or the same process. Verse 20, and ye shall offer for a sacrifice unto me a broken heart and contrite spirit. And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Seeing with our eyes, hearing with our ears, understanding in our heart, repenting and being healed is entering into the new covenant of a broken heart and contrite spirit, which at a bare minimum means placing everything upon the altar and specifically receiving by revelation that which God would have us do individually to fully offer up the sacrifice. And, you know, similar words were uttered by King Benjamin at the commencement of uh, King Benjamin's discourse where he pled to the people in verse 9 of Mosiah 2. And these are the words which he spake and caused to be written, saying, My, be, my brethren, all ye that have assembled yourselves together, you that can hear my words, which I shall speak unto you this day. For I have not commanded you to come up hither, to trifle with the words which I shall speak, but that you should hearken unto me, and open your ears that ye may hear, and your hearts that ye may understand, and your minds that the mysteries of God may be unfolded to your view. Well, this is how King Benjamin began, and the culmination 
of King Benjamin's address was, in fact, the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost for his people. In Mosiah 4, um, at the end of verse 1, the multitude had fallen to the earth, for the fear of the Lord had come upon them. And they had viewed themselves in their own carnal state, even less than the dust of the earth. And they all cried aloud with one voice, saying, Oh, have mercy, and apply the atoning blood of Christ, that we may receive forgiveness of our sins, that our hearts may be purified. For we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who created heaven and earth, and all things who shall come down among the children of men. And it came to pass that after they had spoken these words, the Spirit of the Lord came down upon them, and they were filled with joy, having received a remission of their sins and having peace of conscience because of the exceeding faith which they had in Jesus Christ, who should come, according to the words which King Benjamin had spoken unto them. And chapter 5, verse 2, And they all cried with one voice, saying, Yea, we believe all the words which thou hast spoken unto us, and we also know of their surety and truth, because of the Spirit of the Lord omnipotent, which has wrought a mighty change in us or in our hearts that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. This is the call of every true prophet and every servant of God in every dispensation to cry repentance and implore the people to fully offer up the sacrifice of a broken heart and contrite spirit that they might receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, which is what sanctifies a man, a woman, or a people preparatory to entering into the rest of the Lord. And we ourselves, verse 3, to the infinite goodness of God and the manifestations of his spirit, have great views of that which is to come. And were it expedient, we could prophesy of all things, or in other words, they could speak with the tongue of angels, one of the signs that is present, as Nephi outlines in First Nephi chapter 31, of a man or woman who has received the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost. And verse 7, and now because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he has spiritually begotten you, for ye say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name. Therefore ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters. Well, the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, is a formal adoption ceremony, whereby we become sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. Now, this commission is also echoed by Moses in D&C 84. And in D&C 84, verse 23, now this Moses plainly taught. Now, what is the this that he plainly taught? Well, in verses 20 and 21, we've just been talking about the power of godliness being manifest unto men in the flesh. And in the 1843 uh, Millennial Star, it says this about the power of godliness being manifest unto men in the flesh. This is number four. August 1843, volumes three through four. In the renewal of the covenant with the children of men. The renewal of the covenant is the opening of a new dispensation, which Moses did, which Joseph Smith did, which Isaiah is doing. There are many subjects of great interest to the saints and of unspeakable value. 
but the gift of the Holy Ghost, i.e. the baptism of fire and baptism of the Holy Ghost, stands preeminently distinguished as the greatest gift that man could receive or deity bestow. The possession of this gift, which is the power of godliness, is what constitutes the special difference between the church of the living God and the multitude of systems that have originated through the will of man. So back in DNC 84, um, verse 20, therefore in the ordinances thereof, the ordinances of the first order of Melchizedek priesthood, which include the ordinance of baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, the power of godliness is manifest, or um, individuals receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and without the ordinances thereof and the authority of the priesthood. And the power, of God, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. Or in other words, when there is not a man on the earth who's been ordained and sealed to this order of the priesthood, um, the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost is not available to God's people. And that's why the opening of a new dispensation is so critical and so important. Because when it is, Baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost is available again. Now, with Isaiah, like Moses, how did Moses' people, how did the early saints under Joseph Smith, how did the people that Isaiah was declaring to receive this message of a broken heart and contrite spirit entering into the new and everlasting covenant? Well, Verse 23 of DNC 84. Now this Moses plainly taught to the children of Israel. What? The new and everlasting covenant. Baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost. In the wilderness and sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. Because it is the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost is what sanctifies a man, a woman, or a people. Preparatory to entering into the rest of the Lord, which rest is the fullness of his glory. But they hardened their hearts and could not endure his presence. So in Isaiah 6, verse 9, the Lord is letting him know, those who reject your message are those who go on hearing but not understanding, seeing but not perceiving. Make the hearts of these people grow fat, dull their ears and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, repent and be healed. It's not that Isaiah wasn't extending the opportunity for the people to repent and return. It's just that most would reject it, but some received it. And this is a type and shadow for our day. The type and shadow for our day is that when the end time servant returns on the scene, he will also preach the doctrine of Christ, extend the opportunity to repent and return and receive the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and most will reject it. At the very end of Isaiah 6, Isaiah is going to give us some rough percentages about those who will accept and reject uh, in the last days. But the pattern was established during Isaiah's day, and it will be similar during our day. Continuing in DNC 84-24. The Lord in his wrath for his anger was kindled against them, swore that they should not enter into his rest while in the wilderness, which rest is the fullness of his glory. 
The exact same idea being expressed here in Isaiah uh, verse 9. Verse 11. And I replied, for how long, my Lord? And he said, until the cities lie desolate and without inhabitant. And remember, this is a type for the end times in which generation we are currently in. The house is without a man and the land ravaged to ruin. Now, these are all examples of what happens when God's people come into covenant curse. Verse 12, for Jehovah will drive men away, and great shall be the exodus from the centers of the land. And while yet a tenth of the people remain in it or return, they shall be burned. But like the terebinth or the oak, when it is felt, whose stump remains alive, so shall the holy offering or offspring be what is left standing. So let's unpack this verse. For Jehovah will drive men away, and great shall be the exodus from the centers of the land. Now, in addition to the servants in Isaiah, there's also the arch tyrant, the king of Assyria, king of Babylon, that amasses to himself all political, economic, and military power and becomes the staff in the Lord's hat, left hand to destroy the wicked. And during that destructive period, um, most of the people refuse to repent and return. And so instead of deliverance, they receive destruction. And while yet a tenth of the people remain, okay, this tenth of the people is, you know, tithing imagery. We're going to have roughly 10%, according to Isaiah, of the people who qualify for deliverance from destruction. But qualifying for deliverance from destruction is the not the same thing as qualifying for deliverance from bondage. And while yet a tenth of the people remain in it or return, they shall be burned. Who will be burned? The 90% who don't qualify for deliverance from destruction, along with their cities. But like the terebinth or the oak, when it is felled, whose stump remains alive, so shall the holy offspring be what is left standing. Or in other words, When in ancient Israel, when tithing was paid to the priests, um, the priests would deliver a tenth of the tenth of what was paid to them to the Levites for their service. And this is what is being likened to the terebinth or the oak, that when it is cut down, it will spring back. And this is the 1%. The 1% are those who qualify for deliverance from bondage. And as we're going to find out in Isaiah, those who qualify for deliverance from bondage are led out by the end-time servant or servants on an end-time exodus. This end-time exodus culminates in meeting up with the return of Enoch, his city, and establishing New Jerusalem. 
Now, in a Latter-day context, if we go to DNC 103, verse 15, Behold, I say unto you, the redemption of Zion must needs come by power. And remember that Isaiah uses historical precedent as anti-metaphor. And the reason that he is giving us this narrative and his calling is because it sets a precedent for what will be in our generation. And in DNC 103, starting in verse 15, we have the account of a latter-day exodus. Behold, I say unto you, the redemption of Zion must needs come by power. Therefore, I will raise up unto my people a man who shall lead them like as Moses led the children of Israel. For ye are the children of Israel and the seed of Abraham, and ye must needs be led out of bondage by power and with a stretched out arm. And as your fathers were led at the first, even so shall the redemption of Zion be. Therefore, let not your hearts faint. For I say not unto you as I said unto your fathers, mine angel shall go up before you, but not my presence. Now, notice that in verse 18, as your fathers were led at first, even so shall the redemption of Zion be. So again, we have this idea of historical precedent um, setting an end time standard or metaphor for how things will be in the lead up to the return of Jesus Christ in his glory. Now, verse 20, mine angel shall go up before you, but, or in verse 19, mine angel shall go up before you, but not my presence. This is talking about Moses and the children of Israel. The angel was, as we read um, in verses 1 and 2 in DNC 76, about the seraphim level or about the level of king and priest having the second order of Melchizedek priesthood sealed upon you know, a man. This was Moses. This is the angel or seraphim level that is both being used in the Doctrine and Covenants and in Isaiah. But notice, mine angel or Moses shall go up before you, but not my presence. Or in other words, that doesn't mean that they had the opportunity for Christ to personally come down and walk with them through the desert. But what they did have the opportunity to do was, as we read in DNC 84, to be sanctified by the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and then enter into the rest of the Lord, just as Moses had done. And in that way, the Lord would have gone up before them. But we learn about the end time exodus. Verily, verily, I say unto you that my servant Joseph Smith Jr. is the man to whom I liken the servant, to whom the Lord of the vineyard spake in the parable which I have given unto you, so we've just had identified who this end-time servant is, who the Davidic servant is uh, in Isaiah and in the prophecies in the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants. And verse 20, but I say unto you, mine angels, plural, versus angel singular, in verse 19, shall go up before you. And also my presence. And in time you shall possess the goodly land. Well, who are these angels, plural? The angels, plural, are those who have been ordained as kings and priests under the Most High God in the Holy Order, which will include Joseph Smith and also um, a portion of the 144,000 who on the end time exodus will be working 
with those who have received the baptism of fire and baptism of the Holy Ghost to help them make the next ascension level to entering into the rest of the Lord, becoming a member of the Church of the Firstborn, and thus qualifying to enter into New Jerusalem. Now, the extension of this parable and the commentary on it in DNC 101 and the commentary that we were just reading in 103 is in JST Genesis 9, right after the Bible Dictionary and right before the Bible Maps. When the Lord is speaking to Enoch, or when the Lord is speaking to Noah about the covenant that he made with Noah's great-grandfather Enoch about the return of the city of Enoch and establishing New Jerusalem to the earth. And the bow shall be in the cloud that I may look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant which I made unto thy father Enoch, that when men should keep all my commandments, Zion should again come on the earth, the city of Enoch, which I have caught up unto myself. Well, this time that's being prophesied of when men would keep all of God's commandments is on the end time exodus, when those who have received the baptism of fire, baptism of the Holy Ghost, are hearkening to the voice of the Spirit, or feasting upon the words of Christ, and thus qualifying to enter into the rest of the Lord. And this is mine everlasting covenant, that when my posterity shall embrace the truth and look upward, then shall Zion look downward, and all the heavens shall shake with gladness, and the earth shall tremble with joy. And the general assembly of the church of the firstborn shall come down out of heaven and possess the earth and shall have place until the end come. And this is mine everlasting covenant, which I made with thy father Enoch. And so this is the context of Isaiah's prophecy to alert us to how the gathering out of the strength of the Lord's house is going to look, what God's people need to do to qualify uh, to be the strength of his house, to be called out on the exodus, um, what that exodus will look like, the missionary efforts that will take place on the exodus, the gathering of Israel that will ensue, the establishment of New Jerusalem as a holy city with the return of Enoch, and also the sending of servants out to the Jews to affect the separation of wheat and tares among the Jews, that old Jerusalem might also become, again, a holy city in final preparation for the return of Jesus Christ in his glory. Isaiah chapter 7. When Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not overpower it. Now, we have, you know, kings from the time of Isaiah, at the time he received his prophetic commission, um, you know, threatening to invade Syria, or what is called a ram, um, you know, the, the 10 northern tribes of Israel um, and the southern, you know, kingdom of Judah, you know, to, to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah and, you know, subject its people to, you know, the kingdom of Assyria. 
Um, so King Ahaz, who was a wicked king in Israel, he refused, or a wicked king of the southern kingdom, Judah, he refused to join with um, Syria and Israel in alliance to fight the Assyrians. Um, and so instead, um, Ahaz uh, proves himself um, to not receive the prophetic counsel of Isaiah, to not follow the Lord's counsel, even though the Lord is willing to give him, you know, any sign he might ask for that he should hearken unto Isaiah's words. And verse two, and when the house of David was informed that Aram was leading Ephraim on, the king's mind and the minds of his people were shaken as trees in a forest are shaken by a gale. All right, this is King Ahaz in the southern kingdom. Um, so, you know, when he's informed that the northern tribe Israel, here called Ephraim, you know, is in alliance with Syria or Aram, um, he, he is worried. Verse 3, then Jehovah said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jashub, at the end of the aqueduct of the upper reservoir on the road to the laundry plaza. Say to him, see to it that you remain calm and unafraid. Be not intimidated by these two smoking tail ends of kindling, by the burning anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Ramalia. So do not be concerned that the northern tribe, Israel or Ephraim, is uniting against you. They will not be successful. Even though Aram has conceived an evil plot against you, as has Ephraim, or the alliance of nations of the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, and the son of Ramalia, who say, let us invade Judah, the southern kingdom, and stir up trouble there. We will take it for ourselves by force and set a ruler over it, the son of Tabiel. Verse 10. And again, Jehovah addressed Ahaz and said, ask a sign for yourself from Jehovah your God, whether in the depths <coughs> below or in the heights above. But Ahaz said, I will not. I will not put Jehovah to the test. Now, Ahaz is demonstrating a false humility here because he knows that God will in fact give him the sign that he asks for, but he doesn't want to know. This is an example of desiring one's own will above God's will. And the opposite of a broken heart and contrite spirit. And in Isaiah, the leadership are usually in parallel with where the people are at. So the leadership of Judah is demonstrating a hard heart. And the parallel would be that so are the people. 
verse 13. Then Isaiah said, take heed, O house of David. Is not it enough for you to try the patience of men? Must you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, will my Lord of himself give you a sign? The young woman with child shall give birth to a son and name him Emmanuel. Now, this sign is being given to King Ahaz. So even though King Ahaz says, Isaiah, I don't want a sign, Isaiah is saying, well, you're going to get one anyway. And while these verses are normally interpreted as referring to the birth of Jesus Christ, um, and ultimately, yes, it does point to that specifically, um, that would not be a sign to King Ahaz. Uh, the sign to King Ahaz would actually have to be a sign that he would witness the fulfillment. And so this is a sign of the birth of a son to King Ahaz, the King Hezekiah, who also would serve as a metaphor for the Lord's end time servant who would save and deliver his people. Therefore, will my Lord of himself give you a sign. The young woman with child shall give birth. This is Ahaz's wife to a son and name him Emmanuel or God with us. Verse 15, cream and honey will he eat by the time he has learned to reject what is evil and choose what is good. But before the child learns to reject the evil and choose the good, the land whose two rulers you loathe shall lie forsaken. Or in other words, there will be sufficiency, uh, not only for Hezekiah, but Hezekiah's people. Now, cream and honey is not um, extravagant eating. Um, it is the food of those who go into the wilderness. But the, the message here is that they will be provided for. There will be sufficiency for them, not only for Hezekiah, but his people. And that Hezekiah is going to choose good over evil. And that before this happens, um, those who are threatening to destroy the southern kingdom of Judah will themselves be destroyed. Verse 17, Jehovah will bring upon you and your people and your father's house a day unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah, the day of the king of Assyria. In that day, Jehovah will signal for the flies from the far rivers of Egypt and for the bees in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle with one accord in the river beds and the prairie and in the rocky ravines and by all ditches and water holes. In that day, my Lord will use a razor hired at the river, the king of Assyria, to shave your head and your hair and your legs and cut off even your beard. So the king of Assyria is going to come and subjugate the southern kingdom. This imagery of a razor and river are 
the destructive forces and the subjugating forces of the king of Assyria. The imagery of having one heads, one's head and legs and beard cut off is the imagery of coming into bondage and into servitude. And this as the punishment for not hearkening unto their Lord and God. When if they would, they would be delivered from invasion and destruction. Verse 21. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and a pair of sheep. And because of their plentiful milk, men will eat the cream. All who remain in the land will feed on cream and honey. Or in other words, even in the midst of bondage, there will be a people who will qualify for deliverance. And they will be delivered out of bondage by the Lord, and there will be sufficiency for them. Verse 23, in that day, every plot of ground with a thousand vines worth a thousand pieces of currency shall be briars and thorns. Now juxtaposed against um, God's, those who repent and return and enter, enter into covenant with their God and will be delivered from bondage are those who will not. And for them, there will not be sufficiency. So instead of, you know, a young cow and a pair of sheep, which is not a lot, normally there would be many cows and many sheep, but this is expressing the idea that although... Um, there is scarcity, there is also sufficiency for God's people who will enter into covenant with him. But for those who will not enter into covenant with him, the ground will be covered with a thousand vines worth a thousand pieces of currency. What had been rich and fertile abundance will now be briars and thorns. So there will not be sufficiency for those who will not enter into and keep covenant with their God. And remember that this has an end time application. Men will go there with bows and arrows and for the whole land shall revert to wilderness. And on the hillsides cultivated by the hoe, you will no longer go for fear of the briars and thorns, but they shall serve as a cattle range and a terrain for sheep to tread down. So, an end time context is that the whole earth is going into a period of bondage. However, in this bondage, those who wait upon the Lord, those who trust in him, who do not give up and are complicit with Babylon, will have sufficiency provide for them, provided for them. They will be delivered out of bondage, and they will go on an exodus. And verse 25, when it says, and on all hillsides cultivated by the hoe, you will no longer go for fear of the briar and thorns. That means where there once was abundance, now there will be desolation. 
for those who reject the new covenant. But for those who are led out of bondage, they will cross the lands of desolations with their cattle and with their sheep, and the obstacles to the wicked will not be an impediment to God's people. And this condition is prophesied among many other places in DNC 101. When, verse 55, the Lord of the vineyard said unto one of his servants, go and gather together the residue of my servants and take all the strength of my house, which are my warriors, my young men, and they that are of middle age also among all my servants who are the strength of mine house, save only those whom I've appointed to tarry. Well, who are those who have been appointed to tarry? They're the translated beings, you know, the three Nephites, John the Revelator, because John the Revelator has charge over translated beings. Joseph Smith has, has charge over everyone else. Go ye straightway unto the land of my vineyard and redeem my vineyard, for it is mine. I have bought it with money. Therefore, get ye straightway unto the land, break down the walls of mine enemies, throw down their tower and scatter their watchmen. And inasmuch as they gather together against you, avenge me of mine enemies that by and by I may come with the residue of mine house and possess the land. And here we have the separation between the wheat and the tares. Those who do enter into covenant with their God, not only with their lips, but also with their hearts and those who will not. Verse 64, that the work of the gathering together of my saints may continue. Well, why does it have to continue? Because it was cut short. And it was cut short because the saints under Joseph Smith in his first ministry would not, just like the children of Israel before them, enter into the full covenant with their God that they might enter into his rest. And so the fullness was taken, but the NC 101 prophesies that Joseph Smith returns before the second coming of Jesus Christ to finish the restoration and lead God's people on an end time exodus. He gathers out the wheat. They go on the exodus. The tares don't make it. That I may build them up unto my name upon holy places. For the time of harvest is come, and my word must needs be fulfilled. Therefore, I must gather together my people, according to the parable of the wheat and the tares, that the wheat may be secured and the garners to possess eternal life and be crowned with celestial glory when I shall come in the kingdom of my Father to reward every man, according as his work shall be, while the tares shall be bound in bundles. Their bands made strong that they may be burned with unquenchable fire. Well, that didn't happen in Joseph Smith's first ministry. It does happen in his second. That, in verse 103, verse 15, Behold, I say unto you, the redemption of Zion must needs come by power. Therefore, I will raise up unto my people a man who shall lead them, like as Moses led the children of Israel. An exodus out of Egypt. And... In conclusion of this portion, Helaman chapter 10. Just as Moses was endowed with the sealing power command over the elements before he went into the court of King Noah, which is what we read in DNC 76, becoming a king and a priest under the Most High God, um, so will Joseph before his final return. And in Helaman 10, we have the account of Nephi 
having the patriarchal order of the Melchizedek priesthood sealed upon him, which is the power to command the elements. And verse four, blessed art thou Nephi for those things which thou hast done. For I have beheld how thou hast with unweariness declared the word which I have given unto thee, unto this people, that thou hast not feared them and hast not sought thine own life, but hast sought my will and to keep my commandments. Verse six, behold, thou art Nephi and I am God. Behold, I declare it unto thee in the presence of mine angels that ye shall have power over this people and shall smite the earth with famine and with pestilence and destruction according to the wickedness of this people. And verse 10, and behold, if ye shall say that God shall smite this people, it shall come to pass. And now behold, I command you that ye shall go and declare unto this people that thus saith the Lord God, who is almighty, except ye repent, ye shall be smitten even unto destruction. And so our task is, how do we qualify for deliverance from bondage? How do we qualify as part of the strength of the Lord's house? How do we qualify for mercy instead of justice? And part of that answer is learning how to seek after, receive, and act on revelation, which is what it means to exercise faith, discerning the voice of the Spirit in our hearts, being able to feel its, and receive its sanctification, in our minds being able to receive the message in words, ideas, and impressions, and with our spiritual eyes, <coughs> being able to dream dreams and see visions. And so being able to not only um, receive um, thoughts and ideas in our mind and in our heart, but also to see um, pictures and events that the Lord would give to us that we might be prepared for the end time exodus, that we might become the strength of his house and participate with the other laborers in declaring the doctrine of Christ from the housetops, that all might have the opportunity to be delivered. <laughs>